friends, welcome back to the show today. It is my pleasure to be joined by uh, two of the three hosts of The Truth Table, Akimini Uwan and Dr. Christina Edmondson. How are y'all today? We're good. I'm good. <laughs> I'm doing good? all right. <laughs> glad, glad to be in the land of the living. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm good. Glad to be here. Right on. Right on. on muting and unmuting my mic. Sorry. Well, hey, I mean, you guys have done like six seasons of podcasts. I feel like muting is something that you guys have competency doing. But let me be honest. Well, who knows? Yeah. We're we're all kind of just making this up as we go. Let's be real. We're all making it up. Listen. Yep. We really are. Uh, Okay, Christine, I got nothing but love for your Twitter handle and your social game. But I'm going to be real honest. The Twitter handle, MDiva. Uh, oh, oh for Kimini. Oh, yeah, it's advanced, oh, okay. isn't it? I, that's high-level stuff right there. I saw that years ago, and I was like, I don't know who this person is, but I really respect that name. And so I, I was like, yeah, I'm going to follow Thank this person. You. That's funny. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, right on, right on. Um, and uh, I think some of us, for the first time, heard, is it Kimini's? It was your voice that's on the craze song, Right? Yes, yes, that's me. Christine, how do you feel like, man, I got left out? Like, what's the deal, Lecrae? How come you no, didn't I'm, no, no, hook I'm, me I'm up? Fine. It's all right. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Did you ask okay. did you ask to be sampled on something in the future or to get a verse or something? No, no. I, I you know, I'm, I'm I'm very content, you know. God okay. loves contentment is great game. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Although although although, you know, I, my guess is that uh, what he'll say is that he's been in, he's been informed by my teachings. I'll I'll take that. Yeah. I okay. I hadn't I had made it in as a musical muse. A Kimini is a hip-hop muse so um, <laughs> she is definitely the cooler kid at the table <laughs> yeah well i mean i would i would definitely put that on my bio so congratulations yeah. uh for getting that for getting that for Thank sure you. it's actually um, it is on there actually <laughs> is, is it really <laughs> it is it's on the long one <laughs> I, I mean yeah i mean that's, mm-hmm. that's definitely fair i mean that's a big deal that's a big deal i remember when that uh album came out and then i remember listening to it going wait a minute uh what is that he just put on there and then I was like, oh, that's you. Did you get a heads up about that beforehand? Or were you surprised yeah, like the rest of us? Like a, probably like a week or two before. I was like, wait, what? Oh, okay. Like, it's actually, it's technically, it's a sample from a uh, true sample episode. So, fun little fun fact there. Uh, nice. So, yeah, yeah. He texted me, like, I don't know, a couple of weeks before the album dropped. Like, hey, uh, your voice is on here. So then we had to go to do the legal stuff, you know. Oh yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, it was it was cool, really really did, cool. Did you guys get a bump in listeners after that? Did you get something like that episode? People going back and finding it or anything? I don't know. I don't know about that. I, th- I, I think because I don't think people could identify that it was a truth table episode. They probably just identified that it was my voice. And mm. so, um, but you know, through the years, that was probably season one or two of, yeah. C- of Truth Table, and it came. Oh, actually, no, season one because that yeah. album dropped, I think, in twenty seventeen. So. Um, but you know, true staples been by mm-hmm. God's grace been growing. Yeah. It's, it's done really well. It's done really well. Yeah. Well, let me tell you this. This is my promise to you. Um, if the Le- has another book come out and he's back on my podcast, I will tell him that he needs to give better recognition for where the sampling comes from. Cause you guys should have gotten some bump <laughs> at least on listeners for that week. I mean, at least like there should have been something. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. I'm here for you. Okay. So the, the podcast is, um, uh, specifically designated, uh, and focused for black women, by black women, for black women. And during this like publication game, which uh, y- y'all know how it works, um, you have a publicist who says, hey, we want to try to get you on this guy's podcast. And so they reach out to me. I'm like, yeah, I'm excited to talk to y'all. But like y- the book specifically by black women, for black women. And I feel like you guys figure this out by now. Like I'm, I'm a white man. And so when they say, hey, uh, we want you to do this podcast with a, a white guy, what is... Um, 
how do you feel like talking about the the work? To, I know you, you referred to uh, like the stadium room crowd. Is that what you referred to? The stadium non- room section. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. obviously that's 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 what I would be classified as. When you think about talking about your work, which is designated for an audience which might not exactly be me, how, like how do you like think through this sort of conversation? I mean. Uh, you're a human being just like us. <laughs> we're image bearers. Uh, uh, Thank you. We, Thanks for noticing. We're, we're all, we, we have things to learn from one another. And I, I think it's important for our standing room section people. We, we appreciate our standing room section people um, who support the work of Truth Table, who learn and glean. I think part of the, uh, the, well, part of the reason why the table is built by black women and for black women is that there's oftentimes not spaces for yeah. us, um, for our intellectual work, our analysis to be honored, to be centered. Um, and so I think it's a, a, a great opportunity, uh, for, uh, you and so many others who are, do not identify as black women to learn, to glean, you know, to be the fly on the wall, to hear this conversation that you're not oftentimes um, privy to or even invited to. <laughs> These are sometimes behind uh, um, clo- closed door conversations, you know, if if you will. But it's an opportunity for you to really learn and um, learn from the vantage point of black women. And we need to learn from one another um, in order to uh, be better citizens, be better neighbors. Um, and if they're Christians, then be better neighbors to one another. Yeah, yeah. no, I would, yeah, I would say ditto to everything that, that E just said. And then also, I mean, you know, my background, I, I do work around, um, intercultural development. So we don't really see our own culture or understand ourselves. We can, particularly if we're in the majority culture, you can really develop kind of an acultural lens. Like I'm just, I'm just me, I'm just normal. And so, uh, being able to read, um, and hear from people that uh, have different narratives and stories actually helps us to better be able to see our own story. So, I mean, I, I remember very early in elementary and middle school reading reading the works of from people who were representing cultures and experiences that were not like my own. Um, you know, some earliest memories of reading, you know, uh, Anne Frank and um, just just so many different things that. I, and on many levels, I would say this is not my story, not even my time period, not even my culture or my group, but it still held up a mirror for me to better understand myself uh, in many, many different ways. And I think that's the that's the gift of um, respectful, um, yeah. humble uh, cross-cultural exchange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think if the humility is not part of the conversation, there is the, some part of the, the, the crowd that hears, oh, this is by black women for black yeah. women and it feels like oh you don't want to talk to us or you're not respecting or you think we don't have anything to bring to the table so to mm-hmm. speak i hate that i use that pun right there but um <laughs> what i hear y'all speaking to is you reference a uh, malcolm x line in the book about how the most disrespected person in america is the black woman where if if there was a more generous table for everyone then there wouldn't yeah. need to be specific tables for certain people but if we could elevate the conversation in such a way that the table is more inclusive for everyone then you don't have to have these niche audiences, though, though it's important to have specific conversations oh, with specific sure. people, of course. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, so I, I, sure. I appreciate that difference. And uh, one of the things that I, I, this is just my perspective on this, and obviously y'all can correct me if you think there's growth areas <laughs> in it, for sure. As a white pastor, I feel like it is white people's job to talk about racism. It is white people's responsibility to educate ourselves. And mm-hmm. we also need people who can help translate things for us. Uh, there's a, a section of the book, which hopefully we'll, we'll get to later, about, uh, I think it was E, it was, can I just say E, because I feel like Christina did, and I feel like that's a lot easier for me, um, and I didn't know if we're that good of friends yet, because I would just like to think that we can be, um, 
That's but that's you, what we do on the show. But Kimini, you have to answer that question. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, I prefer Kimini. Kimini. Okay. You know, All right. I'll, the new audience, they don't know me, but our okay. audience knows me. And so Fair enough. Kimini, we'll stick with that one then. All right. Um, but you've got a section in which you have some questions for black people who are in white churches. And I oh, first read mm-hmm. that and I was like, wow, this is um, like, there, there's a lot here. And <laughs> so one of the things I did, I've got a, like a, a big brother who, in like in, in the faith who uh, like he's been around longer than me. And so I literally took a screenshot of that and I was like, all right, fate, um, help me process this. And so he literally called me late last night. He's California time. So it's 10, 10 o'clock mm-hmm. at night my time. And he's like, all right, this is what he's thinking. These are some great questions. Obviously this is what's going on. But, not everyone has like a big brother like like I do right. who can help me process some things that are clearly written not specifically for me and I'm in some ways like eavesdropping conversation. And one of the things that I hope with the podcast can be is a way to move past the sort of like divisive kind of like scarecrow arguments that we do where like I'm just going to hear one thing from you talking about something else and I'm going to build this whole ideology about different people and different understandings. But they don't actually have the humanity to listen and to, gra- to gain empathy and understanding from each other. And I think we have to have that if we're ever going to move forward. Does that make sense to y'all? Yeah, yeah. Humility and empathy, very, very important. Yes. In order for us to learn from one another and to grow, and to grow yeah. in grace, right? Yeah, absolutely. 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 And I think that's what we try. That's why, at least in that chapter of Decolonized Discipleship, I tried. I feel like that's my most outward-facing <laughs> that's my that's my stand. If I had to pick a, a chapter that's a standing room section chapter, that one is a standing room section chapter more more than anything else. Why is that? Why is it? <laughs> um, well, because I'm talking about because um, I'm, I'm talking about um, black and non-black people um, that find themselves in white church spaces, whether they be progressive or conservative. Um, and I'm not, not, not specifically necessarily, although I do have something in there for black Christians in black church spaces. Um, the, the real crux of that, that chapter there is really for black people, black Christians and non-black Christians even that are finding themselves in those spaces, you know? So, cause I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to assume that just because you're a black Christian, you grew up in black church because that's not the case anymore. We can't assume that anymore. That might've been the case 20 plus years ago, maybe even 30 years ago. Christina mm-hmm. knows the data more than me, mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's not the case now, you know? So, so yeah, I think for me, I had in that one, I had to try to, I had to kind of at least try to embody and exhibit some of those characteristics of just like empathy, right. And humility yeah. of like not trying to cut people down, not trying to be unnecessarily harsh um, on people, but but, but asking us to examine ourselves, examine yourself, yeah. you know, like now what, now how exactly did you find yourself in this place? You know, and, and, and really causing people to really begin to wrestle with themselves, you know, which, which I think is good for us. We all have to wrestle, I think, internally and yeah. test mm-hmm. ourselves, if you will, as scriptures, uh, as, as the apostle Paul admonishes us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, we all have to do some introspection. We also have to mm-hmm. do empathy to be able to listen, to understand each other. Yeah. And to understand that like there's there's a story that each and every one of us are living that predates mm-hmm. us, that we step into something that's um that existed long before we did. And mm-hmm. Christina, one of the things that you uh you talk about um is hmm. Um your own skin tells a story of what happened to your ancestors, and um, mm-hmm. 
you, I, I think you said it was like your DNA claims that you are like one quarter European, even though for the past hundred years you don't have anyone in your family that um, uh, like that's a white person, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. And so that, you, I'm aware, you, that I'm aware of. You know how families work now, but that I'm aware of. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> and so even as you look at your skin, it tells a story that maybe some of us wouldn't process. As you, as yeah. you see that, what is the story that's being told to you? Oh, well, yeah, I think, I think it's a story from the, yeah, the coast of West Africa uh, into the southern part of the United States and all that happened along the way. And the war, the really, um, certainly there's a narrative of enslavement, but there's also a war against the people. And one of the, one of the mechanisms of war is sexual assault. And I just came across a story today that was heartbreaking about what's happening in the Ukraine, but certainly we know this is the case all over the world uh, that's happening, not just, not just bombs, but the way in which people use sexual subjugation. And that is deeply in the narrative of the experience that, of, of West Africans that were brought to this country. They were trafficked here and all the features of trafficking they experienced. Um, and, and yet, um, in many cases, went on to to nurture and feed and raise the children that were the offsprings of um, sexual violation for, for not for like 25 years, for generations, for generations, right? And so um, I think there are many of us who can ident- who identify with that, with a reminder of that story in our appearance, if you have kind of lighter skin, so to speak. Um, but but I don't think it's just it's not just us who have lighter skin. That's a part of the narrative. That's part of the, the the black American narrative. But I would say it's even further than that. It's also a part of the southern white narrative, uh, which is why I think which is why I think DNA tests are good for everybody. <laughs> um, Tell me in terms more. Of, <laughs> well, Flush it out for the white. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, my, my I have a I have a maiden name that's fairly rare to uh, black Americans in the country, but there are more. Um, more people who identify as white with that name. And there's an interesting, even in my family history, there's an interesting narrative about who, who, uh, you know, was passe LeBlanc, meaning passing for white, right? And, and who, mm-hmm. and who maintain their white skin privilege by intermarrying with white identifying people, right? In order to, in, in very real ways, in order to maybe save their lives or to have economic resource or whatever the perks or privileges of, of, that, of that time period were and are today. Um, and then there, of course, there were people in that, in that story, that narrative who went on to marry other um, African-American people. Uh, but, but that is not completely unique to my family history. That, that is a story for many people who are, um, who's a part of their, their familial journey includes the life of the plantation. And in there, you have people who are relatives. <laughs> you know, I, that's the thing, the thing that's so crazy about the, the American history story, uh, the American project around uh, subjugation of, of people of African descent and indigenous people as well, is that um, we're talking about, uh, we're talking about, uh, we're talking about family members. We're talking about a narrative of family members. And uh, when I teach on issues of, of race and culture, sometimes people are like, well, why are we talking so much about the black and white issue in America? And because clearly there are all kinds of narratives that we need to bring to the table and be thinking about the experiences, obviously, of indigenous people and people of Asian descent, et cetera. But, but one of the reasons why the black and white narrative is so piercing in the American story and, and testifies about our unwillingness to reckon with the sin of racism is because we're talking about family business. Because they, these these are people who are related 
to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the black and white story of America is one in which there is actual blood relation happening in very, very high numbers. Um, and so, and again, that's why I think it's helpful for people to really sit and reckon with, um, reckon with the fullness of that narrative. But that's, but you know, that's, that it's painful. It's mm-hmm. family business is painful business um, often. And, uh, but that's, that's still very much a part of the American story. Yeah. The, the beginning of that chapter, you talk about a stereotype that, uh, and I quote, black women are so bitter. When, <laughs> when you think of like the, the pain of that story, for some, they hear that story being told and the natural response would be anger mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. And then, so there's a stereotype that, that you mentioned in the book that black women are so bitter. What do you think causes a lack of space for anger in response to that? What prevents us from having space for that um, for that response? I mean, I, so dehumanization. Whenever we are, um, what you know, whenever I'm thinking about, I mean, I've done a lot of work in, in both nonprofit, church, whatever, corporate sector, and I've been around a lot of of male leaders, even more specifically white male leaders, who at times I have seen lose their temper. <laughs> And have been referred to as passionate, <laughs> you know, yeah. lang- language like oh, he's, he's passionate. And I was like, yeah, it was passionate. But, you know, he was also, you know, angry. Kind, kind of tripping in that moment, too. Right. Yeah. Or, or, or legitimately, maybe fairly angry in some cases, cases. Right. But I think that so. So empathy, empathy requires humanization. We are empathetic towards people that we we, we can look at them and we can see part of ourselves, right? So when you think about Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice, when I look at Tamir Rice, who, who was killed, um, when I look at him, and I think he was about 12 or 13, he was the same age as my nephew. When I saw him, I saw my nephew, Mark, who's now a grown man. Mm-hmm. But I, so it, it, was, it, was not, it was not a stretch. It was not hard to say like, hey, when President Obama said, you know, Trayvon Martin could have been my son, and people were like, huh? <laughs> you know, by the way, white people largely were like, ah, what is he talking about? That's because he could look at Trayvon Martin and see and see the fullness, the richness, the deepness of his humanity. And one of the things that racism does, bigotry does and our fear and our greed does is it robs us of the necessity to be able to see our neighbor as fully human. If we can't see them as human, then we can't empathize. And then we start tripping about why they have emotions that we ourselves have the same emotions or would have the same emotions. Right. And so as we walk through American history and think about the experiences of all kinds of groups of people, but specifically related to to black people or black women, I think a very reasonable and righteous response would be, would be anger, anger over the mistreatment and subjugation. And I think people can do that. They can go there to the extent that they can see and appreciate the full humanity of black women to the extent that they can't, then they try to cover it up, clean it up and silence it. Yeah. Yeah. You have a a line, by the way, for my listeners, uh, you guys wrote different sections of the book. And so I Mm -hmm. feel like I'm like leaving one person out by talking to the other about the section, but um, yeah, (laughs) Uh, we'll, we'll we'll jump to different sections in in a minute. You go on to, to have this line uh, in that chapter. Here's the truth. Forgiveness, healing, and justice are not in competition, but rather interrelated. They fuel, inform, and prop one another up, almost like a three-legged stool. I don't know if we always see them as a three-legged stool. Sometimes it seems like it's, it's either or. Like, how do we move past the either or? Like, are you either for, uh, for 
like justice or for forgiveness? Like, how do you how do you get both of those together? <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, I, I see them as is deeply interrelated. I think one of our biggest problems is particularly in our maybe in, maybe even more so in our cultural context um, is that I don't think we have reckoned with our kind of blood bloodlust around revenge. <laughs> and so hmm. I, I think that people, um, you know, uh, revenge belongs to God and God alone. And the reason why revenge can belong to God and God alone is because God has the moral credibility. (laughs) God is holy, holy, holy and perfect um, to be able to uh, to avenge, so to speak. What we're called to do is to uh, to walk humbly. So that's our Mm -hmm. best position that we're called to and to do justice. And justice is is ultimately about restoration and making things right to the best of our ability. Um, and so I actually think that's a gracious thing to do too often, even if we look at, you know, maybe our criminal justice system or, or, or our relationships with each other, that we um, may be too quick to um, just want uh, a person to experience maybe the same terrible thing that we experience, or we just want to dismiss it and not do the work of, of going about justice because it's actually work. It's actually mm-hmm. vulnerability to pursue justice, but justice is incredibly gracious. If somebody, if someone's a leader, for example, I do a lot of work with leaders, a leader has, has broken their obligation to a community. Let's say they're a pastor and they have, um, they have misused power and authority, right? Which is really easy to happen. <laughs> easy to happen, by the way, if you don't have things in place internally and externally to keep us in check, right? Um, and so it, it, it's, I think it's too easy just to say, like, go away. I would rather say, okay, now this is something wrong has happened. And how do we make this right? What can be done to make this right? And that is restorative. That's also a principle from um, restorative justice work as well. Um, that our goal, though, is, is to, as best we can to try to keep people within the community, but to be honest about the breaches that have been broken and to go about uh, pursuing ways to heal and to, to reconcile and to restore. And so I think oftentimes we, we think um, we, we may even coach people to say, like, um, just let it go. We think that that's forgiveness, that it doesn't sting, that it doesn't have implications. Um, and because we have, I think, a distorted understanding of of justice. Um, How so? But but, but, uh, but well, because I think we want a cheat sheet. I think either we want to punish people so that we don't deal with them anymore, thinking that that's going to take away our pain and hurt. Yep. Um, um, or we just want to act like the difficult thing didn't happen because it's hard for us to hold that, uh, to deal with the pain of it. And so I think there's lots of stuff inside of us internally, psychologically, that's pushing us to do a cheat sheet. Uh, but the work of pursuing justice is actually on the agenda of love, restoration and wholeness. Um, God's justice <laughs> is, on, yeah. is, is, is about that. And I think that's why people get anxious. They get anxious when people talk about pursuing justice, because I think some people are hearing pursuing revenge because yep. they don't have a paradigm for real, true, biblical, restorative justice. Oh, that's that's really good. Uh, yeah, I think when we talk about the justice system, after someone has gone to jail, that justice has been served. And it's like, no, justice hasn't been served. Someone's been punished for what they did, and there should be consequences. Our society needs that, but yeah. that's not biblical justice of making things right. Yeah, you say it so yeah. well in the book that forgiveness looks like trusting God to collect the payment so that we can be free to heal and enjoy and do justice unpolluted by bitterness. Right, like much of like what we want is like I, I want punishment for them, but to not trust that God gets revenge and God is going to make it right. And so, in the meantime, I can live live into this way of doing forgiveness and justice hand in hand, and it's not like either or. Yeah, well, by God's grace, by the work of the Holy Spirit, 
Yeah. <laughs> that all sounds good on the page. And I'm like, yes. And that needs to be empowered by the work of the, the Holy Dude, Spirit. No, no, because, no. You're you 100% know? right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, was, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who, uh, who's from Rwanda, uh, grew up during the genocide. He was uh, living in the Congo. And uh, so I'm like, oh, I'm preaching about uh, loving your enemies. And like, two offices down, a buddy of mine who, who lived through that is there. I'm like, all right, so uh, I, I, like I talk about it and then I'm like, all right, Ramjan, tell me, how do you do this? And he goes, the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit is the only way you can love your enemies when you actually <laughs> right, right. have a reason to hate your enemies. Like yeah. he does in a way that, yeah. Super okay, you're, you're muted. What did you just say? Only you're muted way. still. That's the only way. The, yeah. The Holy Spirit's the only way. Absolutely. Yeah. No way you can do it in your own flesh. No way. You can't will yourself into it. You can't manifest yourself into it. <laughs> it needs to be the Holy Ghost. <laughs> yeah. And and that's like the witness of Christianity mm-hmm. is like there is something else that transcends what mm-hmm. I would want to do in that situation. Uh, but it seems like so much of like the fear that um that you find in white America about this is like fear that there is going to be like retribution for them. Like you, you mm-hmm. have later in the book uh, a quote from uh Pat Robertson. And I feel like anytime you're quoting Pat Robertson, like we're mm-hmm. all losing, right? Like in like <laughs> Anyway, but the quote is like when I, I forget which one of, one of you wrote this. Oh, Pat, you're mm. all right. When televangelist Pat Robertson warned against critical race theory in 2021, he appealed to white fear. Here's the quote from him: Critical race theory wants to take the whip handle and give it to blacks. <sighs> I'm so glad that he made it plain, though. I mean, because I, I I think that's the same dynamic that we see with, with Pharaoh looking at the Hebrew. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, it's like they might treat us the way that we've treated, we treated them. them. Oh, no, no. Yeah, he made it very clear. Yeah, I, someone much smarter than me put this together. And, <laughs> and unfortunately, I, I don't remember exactly who it was. It might have been uh, Vincent Harding who talked about how mm. white America loved Dr. King, or specifically Dr. King, who gave the I Have a Dream speech, because it represented like this, this, yeah. uh, like black angel who's forgiving, but we're afraid of Malcolm X, who mm. uh, is going to say some harder stuff. And so the language was that there was uh, like two assassinations for Dr. King, like the actual mm. one, and then the I Have a Dream speech, like that we don't listen to the years after that as he becomes um, mm-hmm. someone who seems like, this is, y'all can correct me if I'm wrong, but mm. someone who seems to be migrating more towards Malcolm X in a way that makes mm. many white people feel uncomfortable. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, think y'all, I think y'all haven't listened to the I Have a Dream speech either. Really? Yeah, <laughs> tell like, me more. Like, 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 like the very you... beginning of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the very beginning of it. I think, I think what people remember, what people often quote, is the part about not being judged by the color of your skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they and they tend to use that on the agenda of not of 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 color blindness, yeah. of um, of not doing intentional repair or restoration to for people of color. They're like, oh, now all of a sudden it's like, let's not think about let's not think about that, right? So so that's a very small part at the end, but the very beginnings of that speech really talk about um, social, systemic, economic change and empowerment. Poverty. And um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I I think uh, one of King's last works, uh, Where Do We Go From Here, is one of one that I would recommend for people to really sit through and the work of nonviolence, which is really not, wasn't just a methodology. There are people who picked it up as a method, but it was also kind of a deeply rooted theological understanding of um, kind of what, what is happening at the cross, this demonstration of love. Um, And, um, and, and I, and I just think that people, again, we, we are inclined to just use anybody to fit our unrepentant agenda. (laughs) 
<laughs> so uh, using t- attempting to take King's legacy, right, is, mm-hmm. is, is, is something that has happened for a long time. What we tend to remind people of is that when he was alive, he was deeply hated. Yep. And we can look at the, the data on that about the way that people really felt about him. Um, we can look at the responses that he received from clergy. Um, I mean, now there's a there's a um, kind of truncated uh, uh, caricature yep. that we use and a, another objectification of of King's legacy. There was a lot a lot of I think sociological overlap, probably between the work of Malcolm X and um, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, in terms of their analysis of just like the brokenness of society and racism in and of itself. Um, and yeah, when people often think of Malcolm X as scary, I think what white America or white Christian America thinks of Malcolm X as scary. I, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that Malcolm X believed in personal defense, which is interesting because most white Americans, conservatives, certainly believe in personal defense. <laughs> they certainly believe in the right to bear arms and to protect their family. And so uh, what I think so- sociologically and politically, we would probably look at Malcolm X and he would line up in a lot of ways with conservative political ideology. It's just that people don't think about applying that to the life of black men. <laughs> what, is, what happens when black men are like, let me have the right to bear arms. Uh, and so we see throughout history that people respond differently uh, to rights based on who who we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It seems like we all like the idea of little white children and little black children playing together. We yes. like that, but there's there's more that goes to that. And so mm-hmm. that gets taken into the church world where there are many people like me who are white pastors who like the idea of churches becoming uh, constituated in such a way that it represents the diversity in the kingdom of God. And mm-hmm. we, we like that, but there are more layers to that. And Christina, you grew up, uh, mm-hmm. was it Baptist church? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Akimini, yeah. Lutheran, is that right? You were Lutheran? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, but it was a, a white Lutheran church for much of your childhood until college. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, that's right. And so, we referenced this uh, section earlier uh, in the conversation. I want to get back to it. Um, but, so, there's a story you tell in the book where you're asked to participate in writing some, is it like discipleship stuff for a uh, church that has some racial diversity and pastors white, and you write it, and it wasn't very well received. Am I getting yes. this story correctly so far? Yep, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yep, okay. that's right. In the decolonized discipleship chapter, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think I opened with that. That's how I started. Yeah, yeah, and so here's the here's a section that, like I said, I texted to Big Brother and I said, "All right, Fate, um, help me process this," um, because there's a lot that that goes on here. Uh, l- let me read it and we'll talk about it more. Sure. Um, all right, where do we start with this? Um, uh, with that said, I think it's worthwhile to undertake the project of self-examination to determine why you are committed to these church spaces. Context, this is black people in white churches, right? Um, ask yourself the following questions. Do I think the ice is colder at white churches than it is at black churches? Which I was like, I've never heard that phrase before. I guess it's like, do you think the grass is green on the other side of the fence? Right? Mm-hmm. Same, same expression. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Stuff. They just better. Do you think they're better than us? Do you think they're better than us? Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Next on, is my faith in Jesus Christ or is it in whiteness? Why and how did I begin to attend these churches in the first place? Quote, money talks, but in white spaces, money's got a megaphone. So was it the money that motivated me? If you answer to one of these questions above is yes. All right. Then th- there's some work to do there. Um, mm-hmm. My first response is, I, 
I want the church that I'm a part of to represent the diversity that the kingdom of God has. I, I love the people of color I work with. I love the people of color who, who lead and serve in our church. And so I hear this in my first thoughts, man, I, I, like, I don't feel good about this. Um, but then I realized I, I'm not listening to what's actually going on underneath the surface. And mm-hmm. when, uh, when you're posing these questions, like w- what is your hope um, for your listeners to do when they go through this inventory of questions? I, well, I hope is that I hope that they take it to heart. <laughs> I hope they flip to the back of the book where there's my musings and they actually do muse about this and really think and journal to themselves and really have to ask themselves these hard questions like, do I really think that? Was there somewhere along the way that I believed the lie um, that um, the white church is better than this black church that I grew up in or went to or never even tried um, just because it is white? Um, Just because whatever the reason might be. These are hard questions to ask. These are not questions that you um, answer aloud. You know, (laughs) nobody wants to admit like, yeah, actually I do think the white people are better than us. That's a, that's a, that's an internal question that people have to really um, ask themselves. But, but that is the crux of decolonization. Somehow, somewhere your mind and, uh, uh, and even your spirit has been colonized in some way. Um, and this is this is kind of the fruit of what internalized white supremacy. Um, uh, one of some of those manifestations of uh, internalized manif- uh, of, of internalized white supremacy uh, can manifest in these ways if the answer is yes to one of those questions. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And so my my conclusion is not that because you're out of white church it means you're colonized. No, I'm not. You know, you might have some very valid reasons, you know, for being there. I don't know. I'm not in the white church. I, I'm in the black church. <laughs> I've been saved and, and been in black churches. Um, but, you know, but if the, if your answer is yes to those things, ask God to, to help you. Mm-hmm. You know, where where did that, where was that seed planted? And and help me, Holy Ghost, to uproot that. How can I begin to uprooting that, uh, to uproot that? Do I need to start learning and reading um, more black theologians? Do I need to start um, um, honoring maybe the legacy of your ancestors that came before that held on to the faith, right? In some ways, um, you know, that in some very profound ways. And so there's some serious inter internal work that I'm calling people to do in that chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's an invitation, I think, to freedom and, and liberation, to be quite honest, uh, if people can receive it. Well, it might, it might hit you between the eyes at first. That's what truth does, but that's all right. <laughs> at first, you don't like it. People were trying to push Jesus off the cliff. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Okay, people hated Jesus. These are the Jesus. facts. These are the they facts. They hated Jesus. The okay. Yeah. And, 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 so, and why did they try? And, and in that incident, Kimberly, they, they tried to push him off specifically because he was reminding them of of God at work in people that they thought were beneath them. There you go. <laughs> like the yeah. Syrians. And, and, and yes. I think that's, a, that's something for all of us. And I don't think that's, that's not uniquely, I think, um, yeah. That's, that's for ma- everybody. Majority culture, everybody, we have to reckon with God at work in and through people that we think that we are superior That we're to. better to. Yeah, better mm-hmm. than, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kimani, when I was reading those questions, what 
like I jumped back to was you just not too long before told a story about uh, at some point in your life you actually were using uh, a uh, like a skin cream that would lighten the color of mm-hmm. your skin and you talked about how it's like a millions or billions of dollar industry um, and the taglines are always you know everyone likes cleaner lighter brighter skin or uh, again I'm not really. That, that was an ad, mm-hmm, an ad that's in the book, mm-hmm. but it, from the fifties, probably. Yeah, and so yeah, is there some again? A, is there like a self hatred that is connected to that? That has been. Um, I feel like the phrase self hatred is almost like this is a you thing, but like that there is a narrative that like something is wrong internally. Therefore, I need to go to the white church, which doesn't have the mess like the black church or something like that. That is sort of like. Is this like is that the feeling in there? Sometimes for some people, parallel. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think there is a parallel there for some people. You know, that's not. I can't pretend to speak for everybody. For um, sure. But that you know, but that is or everybody. I can only. These are my musings. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, I think that's. I think there there's definitely people that I've known or, or who have parroted that very point, saying, "Well, I, you know, they don't have as much mess over there." Well, they yeah. got mess. It's just a different kind of mess. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, Let me attest to that. Yes, there is plenty of mess <laughs> oh, in the white church. Oh, there's plenty uh, of mess. Plenty of mess to go around in the church. There's plenty of mess to go around in the oh, church. Don't yes. matter black, brown, white. <laughs> it don't matter. So, yeah, there, there's, <laughs> there's, there's mess, there's sin everywhere for sure. Yeah. Y- your read of uh, a text from uh, Song of Songs where uh, mm-hmm. the writer says, I-, I am very dark but lovely. Mm-hmm. I- I, I've never read it in the way you just described, um, where oh, you, you say it is like a, um, not prescriptive, but descriptive of how some people feel. Maybe, <laughs> maybe go one about how you, how you read that text. Oh yeah. 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 So I'm, um, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So on the Solomon's I'm doing a little bit of treatment about colorism in the Bible and trying to, um, you know, I was, you know, in my early twenties just came to faith and trying to figure out like, you know, I was like, I couldn't find, uh, answers, um, in the white church that I came up with, and, and I should say here that the reason why we were in a white church is because of um, Christian imperialism and colonialism. You know, so I, I'm flesh that out a little bit more about y'all's family in Nigeria and coming over. Yeah, I mean, my my parents are um, ethnically Ibibio, and so we are um, descendants of people who were not only snatched in the transatlantic slave trade, but also then colonized mm-hmm. um, on their own land there in Nigeria, which Nigeria is a colonial name. And so, and so, <laughs> yeah. and so we were, so yeah, so um, the Lutheran, you know, Missouri Synod, that that was the denomination, at least in my parents' village anyway, mm-hmm. um, that uh, set up shop, so to speak. And so uh, my father, I mean, grandfather was a, a pastor in, um, in, the, in the village um, there in mm-hmm. Nigeria. And so that's the legacy, you know, there. And so particularly if you have black immigrants that came early 70s, they're going to be connected to either Presbyterians, Catholic or um, uh, Lutheran, Methodist, United Methodist. So those are typically the denominations that many um, uh, Nigerian immigrants were a part of if they came in that first wave, if you will, um, in the early 70s. After that, now, you know, Pentecostalism takes a hold. And so a lot of people are in different you know, churches now. But that was the case. Um, then, so that's the reason why. So that 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 didn't have anything to do with them hating, <laughs> you know, hating African churches or black. It was just that was the um, 
you know, that's that 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 was just a, a fruit of imperialism, you know, and colonialism, you know, yeah. and so and absolutely um, a colonial education as well. And so that so that was kind of like a, a, a inherited, you know, in some ways. Um, yeah. For me. So when that came to face, you know, I always felt like there was something missing, you know, hmm. um, and I'm not trying to shoot at that. I just I just hadn't come to faith yet. And mm-hmm. so when I when I was in college, you know, I came to faith and then got saved in the black in a black church and have remained um, there, you know. So anyway, I lost my train of thought, but you were. Oh, you're good. <laughs> well, I got, I got more questions. Don't worry. I got more a questions. A little bit of a segue. Sorry about that. You're good. You're good. You're good. You're good. To say that. <laughs> okay. So uh, book is by black women for black women. Um, again, uh, not either of those is, is me, but I, I want to learn something here. <laughs> and so as you're like asking these questions, which, um, <laughs> Black people oh, and white Solomon, churches. Solomon, you were talking about. Okay. No, no, I, I want to go back to the one before that, though. I have more questions. We're, I, I, I don't have enough time to get to all my questions, so we're going to go to this one. Um, your questions for black people and white churches. I'm a w- w- white preacher at a white church that there are black people here. How could I be a good friend? How can I be a resource for black people in my church who you're saying that this would, you need to ask these questions of yourself? What can I do to be a good friend to someone as they should ask these questions mm-hmm. as a, a white preacher in a white church that has black people? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even a white, uh, a good pastor uh, to people of color. I, I, I yeah. think it's important to, I think those, those questions are still ap- applicable too. It's like, am I baptizing these people in whiteness or am I baptizing them in the brown skin Palestinian God, yeah. man, Jesus Christ. I mean, what, what, what's really happening? Am, am I presenting to them? You know, like the questions I, I, I there's lots mm. of, there's a lot of um, statements in the book, you know, that can be turned into questions. So, <laughs> you know, so am I, so the question is, I'm, I'm, I'm actually asking questions of the congregants, but I think the pastor can ask, am I doing this? Am I baptizing them in the faith of a white capitalist Jesus? Well, I, yeah, Polo, I want you to help I, me. At, yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't I'm asking you the sermon. question. How am I knowing I if I'm know. doing I, that? Yeah. Well, I, I, well, I think that you have to. Um, <laughs> I think what you want to do is. I think it's important to celebrate um, people's um, uh, the, the the diverse ethnic diversity within the body uh, uh, there that God has given you to shepherd. Uh, I think it's important to. Mm-hmm. I, I think even in this book, I'm lifting up issues. That are not ever addressed because people just don't think to address it. Like colorism. We live in a country, we live in a white supremacist nation, period. That's point blank. And nobody is going to be able to tell me that we're not when we just passed an anti-lynching bill in 2022 that has been rejected. I don't know how many times at this point. So no. So if anybody wants to say, no, we don't. You show me the receipts that prove otherwise, okay? Yeah. And then, so, I mean, that's just the reality. So, people have, um, so particularly people of color, have had to work through internalized white supremacy and eternalized race, internalized racism to some degree, varying degrees. And sometimes some people don't even know that they have it, right? Until much later or until they get into some sort of affinity group. Maybe they were in white spaces. They didn't realize, like, oh my goodness, like, this whole new world's opened up to me and I never really realized that I don't, you know, that I haven't loved all of myself, right? Yeah. Mm. And so with that said, I think it's it's important to be like, am I am I affirming <laughs> God's good um, creative work in creating um, all of humanity um, in, in some very beautiful and um, wonderful 
ways? You know, are there mm. ways that I can begin to lift that up in my yeah. sermons, in our, you know, Bible studies, you know, um, in our workshops? You know, there. I mean, there's. I think there's a whole lot of uh, Holy Ghost imagination, if you were with mm. me and myself like and Christina talked about this the other day. You know, we got to unleash that, you know, um, Holy Ghost imagination. And then I would even take it a step further, the eschatological imagination, mm. because the eschatological That's reality good. is that we will retain our ethnicity in the um in the in, in glory thank god that's really really good yeah, so we better we, we need to get about the business of loving ourselves yeah. <laughs> amen fully and thoroughly yeah. <laughs> okay so we're going to learn to love to celebrate um when i preached the story of uh david mm-hmm. and uh delilah uh, or uh, David and Bathsheba, I'm mm-hmm. not going to reference uh, Belt of DeVoe and Poison, and I'm not going to quote mm-hmm. any lines about a woman who I can't trust because of her smile. I'm not going to say the rest of the line. <laughs> I um, appreciate that. Okay, yes. So we're not doing that. Um, yes. We're celebrating, and we're, we're finding ways to make sure that we're not baptizing people into uh, whiteness. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. 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 I, think, I think one of the things that... Uh, you didn't ask me this question, Luke, but I'm, I'm going to throw it out there. I'm, I'm going to answer a question you didn't ask me. Um, so, you know, I, so the whole, so we are, um, we look at the Psalms, we get this invitation of asking the Holy Spirit to search us. Mm-hmm. And whenever I'm working with people on issues of, yeah. of bias and, and racism and all the things, we got a lot of forces that are coming against us to tell us how we ought to even think about those words. And people, people are probably listening right now and, and they are hearing us through the filter of their favorite news network and yep. all the things. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And d- let's just be honest about that, right? That that we say that we're hearing people through our faith convictions and the Holy Ghost, but a lot of people are hearing people through the lens of Fox News, for example, which is the number one network listened to by Christians, for example, of all race and ethnic backgrounds, by the way, is the new data point on that. But all of that to say is that we actually have to ask the Holy Spirit. Yeah. To search us. Yeah. And that's a, that's a hard question. But if you ask the Lord to show you your bias, your bigotry, uh, your idols, I'm telling you, the Lord answers that prayer. And I, you know, we may not like that. We may not like the answer, right? But the Lord will answer that prayer. Like, show yeah. me, show me. And I think, I, I think, if uh, for a person, you know, a white pastor who is trying to be faithful to the gospel, trying yeah. to shepherd and love the people, and recognizing their very real limitations, because pastors are limited people, because they're people. <laughs> then, um, then I, I would invite, I would invite that pastor into. Um, and an opportunity to uh, grow in fellowship with other pastors around this topic to not do this. We, we, ought, to, we, are not, we ought not do ministry work alone anyway, yeah, full amen. stop. Amen. But to invite into conversation other pastors, uh, for, for, a, for a white pastor to invite in conversation maybe older white pastors, it's, it's rare, who are doing this type of work. Yes. Who are doing the work of, 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 of uprooting internalized white supremacy, for example, or white yes. normalcy, for example, um, who have who have done the work of that and who can talk about it uh, as being freed from it um, and being content um, in in this identity of, of being God's people of European descent. And mm-hmm. what is whiteness even exactly. about? Where did that exactly. come from? I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many questions of curiosity that I would ask of. Uh, for white pastors to lean into and to consider. And even people who are listening now that might be feeling all kinds of pinches and uncomfortable or whatever you're feeling. I would say, um, ask the Lord, bring it to, bring it to Jesus. <laughs> like bring the discomfort yeah. to Jesus. Yeah. 
um, and, and ask the Lord to, to search you about that. And then also I invite people to do a fair reading of American history. And as a teacher in me, I would say to look at primary sources. So every conversation about race in America, I'm always like, Mm-mm, let's read primary sources. Let, primary let's sources, read yeah. people in their own words, what they really meant when they said what they said, because it's amazing how much is out mm-hmm. there. And so mm-hmm. we don't have to, we don't have to, um, yeah, we don't have to embrace mythology. Christ has set us free. And so we are people of the truth now. Big T truth, Jesus, but also small T truths. Like we can handle the truth, y'all. There's enough grace to process the truth. And I invite people to primary sources um, as leaders so that we can reckon with the reality of history and the way it manifests today. Yeah. And I would also just say quickly, you know, to our um, to our standing room section people to reject the urge for easy questions. I mean, I'm sorry, easy answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think, I think our limitations in the West is that we always want one of the five things I need to know. What are the five <laughs> steps to having a great solid marriage? What are the five steps to being anti-racist? What about... Look, <laughs> tell me what to do and then we don't do it anyway, but go ahead. <laughs> reject, re- reject, the, reject the urge, mm-hmm. the temptation. For easy answers, because honestly, those those little five steps, it's just setting up another law. It's just another form of legalism, (laughs) you know. And so that that just I'm just saying that just to buttress um, Christina's point about asking the Holy Spirit to search you, you know, and yes, working community. You know, the answers will come. It will be clear. But live in um, in the beauty of the gray of what can come out of that mystery, right? These things are not, these, you know, our, our book is pretty, pretty clear. You know, we, we don't, we don't leave a lot of mystery here, but, but, but ask the, you know, but, but, you know, so the temptation is to go, okay, so what should we do? Okay. Take it, take it to the Lord, take it to the Lord, sit please, with and, please. and God will give, can download to you some really creative strategy some really creative ideas on how to live with it and then sometimes it's not about just taking it and run with it sit with it sit with it you know Mm -hmm. in the discomfort i believe the holy ghost is on the move when we start when we start feeling discomfort and uh, and something's rubbing Mm -hmm. up against us i'm like that's a good sign that the holy ghost is Mm -hmm. at work but let's not squander that so people will sometimes just suppress that feeling but but push it push it you know is my is my uh uh, you know uh, my encouragement but resist the urge for easy, easy answers. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to be able to hear hard questions, to Mm -hmm. not simplify with a simple answer, to let yourself be uncomfortable and to trust that the work of the spirit is often through uncomfortable moments. And that's ultimately where change happens. And then we become people who empty ourselves and don't think of ourselves. uh, You've got a line later in the book that you talk about, we use what power we already have to gain more of it. Like mm-hmm. the way of the cross, the way of mm-hmm. Jesus is is emptying ourselves, like pouring ourselves out to mm-hmm. not get more power, but to give our power away to right. um, to put others' needs before ourselves. Like that, none of this is comfortable. And like any yeah. sort of like, here's five things to do to make you feel good and comfortable. It's, it's just not going to work. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, this has been great, Christina uh, Kimini. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Lily. It's great meeting y'all. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for your curiosity. Thank you for your curiosity. <laughs> It is my pleasure. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for the time, guys. Thank you.